what did they say? Third time's a charm. More like 30. Let's see if you can get it right this time. Hey, it's Sachet, and this is The Conscious Creator Show. Through exclusive interviews with authors, actors, entrepreneurs, musicians, other podcasters, and all kinds of creators, we'll explore how to make a life through your art without selling your soul. The creative side of business and the business side of being a creator, if you will. We've got a host of amazing partners like Brain.fm and other amazing companies. So head on over to creators.show, that's C-R-E-A-T-O-R-S dot show to get new episodes, exclusive guides, partner deals, and more. Enjoy the show. Welcome to today's episode. This is one I was looking forward to for a really long time. It's with one of my dear friends in Austin, Catherine Lavery. Catherine is a designer and co-founder and CEO of bestself.co, which is, they have won Shopify's Build a Business Competition twice. And they're the only company actually to win it, win both awards consecutively and ring the New York Stock Exchange opening ball twice. And her work's been featured in Vast Company's uh, 2017 Innovation Awards, and as well as on Entrepreneur, Huffington Post, and, and so on. And similar to me, she's also an Irish immigrant. Well, I'm not Irish, but she's also an immigrant. And one of my favorite things about Catherine is her just her int- intentionality and her attention to detail. So one of my beliefs is how you do the small, how you do small one thing is how you do everything. And I remember when we had both moved to Austin initially and one day we were going to meet to take her two cute dogs for a walk. And we were trying to figure out where to meet. So we, we were making suggestions. And then she sent me a screenshot of the map with the exact place we were going to meet. And it just it just shows like how much attention to detail she puts into everything, including all of her products. So in this interview, we talk about how she really got started. And actually, even before that, how when she was super young, she was um, selling cupcakes. And then in high school, she was drop shipping Dawson Creek DVDs, which is kind of crazy. From there, we talk about how she moved to New York. And right before she came from Ireland to New York, um, she actually had a pay cut and still ended up coming without informing her parents, which I completely get because I've been in similar situations. And then while she was working at an architecture firm, started selling her own products. And the it's really interesting, the, the framework that she used for quitting her job. And um, before she actually went into business, she picked 22 business books in five categories and read them all before she quit her job. And that's actually a common theme you'll see is she's very precise and careful before she makes any decision. We also talk about how she manages and lead, how having systems have helped her be more creative, which is a really interesting point because as creators, sometimes we don't like systems, but she actually talks about how systems have helped her free more of her time and helped her be more creative. We also talk about how she hires, which I've seen her do really well. And I know that's something that uh, creators struggle with. I've definitely struggled with it myself. Because it's just so easy sometimes to be like, I'm just going to do this myself. And her framework is really interesting and really uh, replicable. 
And then we also talk about her experience launch, launching Kickstarter, the, the first Kickstarter campaign for Best Self. And it's really interesting. Their goal was 15000 and they ended up raising 323000 which is insane. And before they actually did the, the Kickstarter, she how she came upon Best Self by solving a problem for herself, which is a common theme for a lot of the entrepreneurs that I know. And also her why around Best Self, why they do what they do. And um, also stories from customers and, and sort of how that motivates her to keep going. One of my favorite quotes from her from this interview is being productive to get more done in your day so that you can achieve more goals or spend more time with the people you love or do the thing you love. That is what matters more than saving time for the sake of saving time. I think that's super important because a lot of times we'll just save time and then we don't know what to fill it with. And something I've seen her do is really prioritize and optimize her time, but then also spend the rest of the time doing what she likes with people she likes. So I uh, hope you enjoyed this conversation. Um, it was also my first in-person interview. And it's really interesting. I've actually heard people say this before. There's a huge difference when you're recording in person or when you're doing it on Zoom. Still don't know which one I prefer yet. You guys can let me know which ones you like better but definitely was a different experience. So hope you enjoy this um, wide-ranging conversation and definitely let us know what you think. All right, Catherine, welcome. Good to be here. So I wanted to start with a story I remember you telling me about what you used to do in high school before you started with any of the stuff that you do now. Can you share that? Yeah, so, uh, well, actually, when I was in primary school, which... I think I was like seven and I used to sell cupcakes on the playground. So I was always like, I need to make my own money. And also, how do I make my money go as far as possible? So every Sunday we would get essentially a dollar after we went to mass to go to the sweet shop. And one of our family friends would say on every Sunday, he would buy like an ice cream and use all of his money. And I'm, I'm just trying to like talk him through, like, what are you doing with your life? You can get, and I, I would like get as much as I could with this dollar. And then of course he would come to me midweek trying to get some sweets because he would eat his ice cream in 20 minutes and then be done. And so then I would sell the candy back to them. And then when I was in high school, I had a an eBay business where, you know, they tell you sell what you know. And so at the time I'm like 13 or 14 and I would import Dawson, actually I drop shipped Dawson's Creek DVDs from Canada and sent them to whoever bought them. So I just put them up on eBay. Someone would buy one and I would never even touch it. I would just like send my contact who I don't even know how I got that contact, send them the address because they didn't sell those DVDs in the UK, which is why I did it. So you were doing that in primary school with the, with the cupcakes. What, how did you get that inspiration? How did you even come up with that idea to start doing that? Well, there was a competition the first time of how much money we could raise for charity. So that's how it started. And I ended up raising more than anyone else because I would sell these cupcakes. But they were also, my mom makes really good cupcakes. So she was making them. And I was just going home and being like, okay, mom, we need more. I was running out of inventory. And, and then it got to a point where she's like, hey, my I have a job, <laughs> which doesn't involve baking for you. So it started with like competition because I'm super competitive. And it just made sense. Like I was always trying to make my own money and like I would wander my neighborhood and ask 
people if they needed any chores done or like their grass cut. And then they would call my parents and be like, do you know that your daughter is wandering the neighborhood <laughs> seeing if anyone needs work done? I don't know what they were thinking. Luckily, I was never kidnapped. And how old were you when you were doing that? Seven primary school or? Yeah, like under, between, probably between like seven and 13. That is fascinating. Do you feel like you still use lessons or, or themes that you learned back then with what you do now? Probably. I mean, I try to, even when things started going well, like I'm always trying to make sure that I use my resources as much as possible, as, as far as possible. So even to the point where there's times when I get on a flight and I'm like, do I buy the Wi-Fi? Do I not? And then it's like, okay, I can buy the Wi-Fi as long as I at least make, you know, if it's like $12, I'm like, I have to make at least $30 somehow on this flight or, or create value on this flight so that I can justify buying this. So I always think of, I try not to get too bloated in the stuff that I'm getting, even for the business. Cause I'm like, what did I do when I didn't have like the money to buy this tool? And that sort of like creates this like scrappiness. Right. And I remember, so, so you moved from Ireland to the U S and talk about that experience. Yeah. So I was born in Canada, but I moved before I was even one, because my parents are Irish from Northern Ireland. And so when I, I grew up until I was 18 there, and then I went to Union in England for my undergrad in architecture. And then I did my like master's in Scotland because I was into design and art. I was into math and design. And even when I was in high school, my last year of high school, you have to pick like four subjects that you're going to do out of everything. And, and I picked computing, physics, and Spanish. And the computer spit out, that is impossible. <laughs> They're like, we don't even have that as a timetable option. Like there's nobody's ever picked this before. So for a year, it was actually the last two years. So the, so the first year I did my design stuff in my free time because I didn't really need to be in a class. So I would just do it in my free periods. And then the, because, and then the, in year two, they actually got me into a class schedule. Cause it's so like right, left brain, that it makes no sense. So anyway, I did architecture because like the art and physics and my parents were like, this makes sense. And at the time, like I didn't even know any, any other option was out there. Like I didn't know anyone that had their own business. I didn't know anyone that didn't just have a job. And so even though I was like very entrepreneurial growing up, like that wasn't even something that I thought was, could be a thing. And you had a really interesting experience right before you moved, right? With the company that you were going to work for. Yeah, so I interned at this architecture firm for a summer in New York, and then they offered me a job once I finished up, which was like four months after I got back. I just had to final do some finals. And so they'd offer me a job and I accepted it. I'm super excited because like they were sponsoring my visa and all this stuff. And so then maybe a month before I was supposed to, month or two months, they were like, oh, things have been a little slow, so we really still want you to come, but we can't pay you as much as, as we thought we could. And it was like 25% less. So it was going from $40,000 to 30,000 in New York, which is like difficult to say the least. So, but at the time I'm like, do I do it? Do I not do it? And then I was like, oh, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go. I'll figure it out. And they said they would increase it, you know, once they got more work. So then I, you know, moved over and then I had two weeks where I was going to explore the city and then start work. And then at the end of this first week, I'd like got 
the apartment and like figured that stuff out. And I'd only come with maybe 700 and something dollars by the time, by the time I, you know, paid for like the visa and everything. So, so I was like two weeks and then I start work. And so then they emailed me after the first week and said, actually, if you could start in six weeks instead of next week, that would be sweet. And I'm like, what the actual, can I swear in this? Yeah, you can swear in this. What the fuck? (laughs) And, And so I'm like, don't know what to do. And, you know, I call them, I'm like, what's the deal? <laughs> and then they have the audacity to say, well, you know, you just graduated. And, you know, when people graduate, they want to travel. So maybe you could do that. And I'm like, I did travel. <laughs> I traveled from Scotland to here. Like, anyway, so I basically in that six weeks, I had to figure out because I couldn't get another job because my job was tied to these people. So I just started like doing freelancing and, and doing some design work for people, whether it's like logos or like turning books into Kindle books. Like I just figured out how to do stuff and then survive long enough to get the job. And do you tell your family that this is going on? No, because I'm like, I don't want them to be like, what is she doing out there? Like, this is not a real job or be worried about me. So I just pretended that it wasn't happening. And I wasn't yeah. like, I wasn't about to go home. So I was just like, I'll, I'll figure it out. And that's something I've been sort of like a common theme for, for creators who are doing this is just like this idea of figuring it out. So when you're working in in your architecture job, it, it, like how was that experience? I mean, it was. I got a lot of experience. The good thing about that company was that they were a small, like studio that did really interesting work. So on the good side of things, I was doing interesting projects. On the not so good side of things, I was just thrown in the deep end. So it was like there was no like standard operating procedure. It was like you're on this project and you have to figure it out. So it was a little stressful because it's like, okay, now you're going to go on site. And if you've seen me, like me walking on site, and this is eight years ago, like everyone's just like, who the fuck are you? (laughs) You tiny little girl. And so it was just like a lot of learning how to do things for the first time. And then feeling like I was like fucking up all the time because there was no like manual that I could look through. And and also I just moved to the US. So, you know, I'm not used to dealing with inches and feet, like, and I'm an architect. So, so it's just like all these standard sizes that, you know, I know in metric and not imperial. So I'm basically like starting from scratch in a lot of ways. What did you learn about um, either running or like not what to do when running a company from that experience? Uh, Many, many things. So I learned, first of all, just setting expectations of like what I expect and what they can expect. And there's, it's kind of a two way street from like, it's not just, you know, you have to give, show people what success looked like. So for me, I think by the end, there was one project that they never kind of done before. It was like a building regulations one, which was my nightmare. I hate like paperwork. So by the end of that project, I was like, I am done. But that one was one where like, I didn't exactly know what to do. And they'd never done like one of these types of reports before. So I spent like most of my time just trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do. And so I constantly feeling like I was not doing the right thing or like messing up. And that actually makes me more anxious than anything else. So like sitting around trying to figure stuff out is completely anxiety (laughs) creating. So there was a time when I was working on this building on like near Times Square. And a year or two ago, I I passed that again. And it was when I was like to have my own company. So 
I saw it and I just felt this like seizing in my stomach of like the feeling that I got when I worked there by the end. And it was just like feeling like I was constantly screwing up because they didn't really give me instructions or show me what a successful end to this project was. And so I kind of went back from that and with each team member, I'm like, okay, do does everyone on my team know what they're supposed to be doing and know what success looks like? Because it just gives you so much anxiety when you constantly feel like you're messing up. Yeah, that's so important is just sort of like setting the right expectations of what you need to do. How do you deal like with, with in projects when you don't know that with the uncertainty? I mean, at the time, I just tried to learn as I went um, or ask people. And I think I still do the same thing now. I like, I think I'm more comfortable with uncertainty than I was back then, only because when you're not in control of like, I wasn't running the company and there was so much out of my control that having uncertainty in that regard was harder because I, there was so much lack of control. Whereas now I, you know, if I don't know something I have a lot of people I can go to for help or like find someone who knows the answer. And I'm much more confident in my own ability to find an answer or like figure it out. It's just like, a, I don't always know what the answer is, but I know that I will if anyone can figure it out, I can, and I'm not waiting around for someone else to do it for me. And I think that's something so important is this like, idea of figure it out. But you can almost like take it too far, right? Like when you're, let's say, like you're in a corporate job and you want to start doing your own thing. So what did that look like for you? Did you just sort of quit and figure it out or how did you deal with that? Uh, no. So when I was in my job, I started, it was probably a few months after I started because it occurred to me, you know, whenever they dropped my pay and then then pushed me off for five weeks or six weeks that I'm like, I can't trust these people. So I, I was like, and I'd started doing design things. So in my free time, I started just designing things and didn't really intend it to turn into a business. But I ended up starting like a design store, a Shopify store, actually. And I would like I started with like five hundred dollars, which meant me like buying like a really nice printer and like printing stuff at home, like designs and stuff. So I would every single day, like ship them myself, like bring a bag into work. There was a post office up two blocks from my office. So I would go and mail them. And then I did that about a year into that. Like that was making more than my day job was. But I was tied to that for a certain amount of time because of my visa until my green card came through. So the last probably four months of that six months of that job was just like so painful because I was making more in my free time or my, I was making more with the, you know, six hours a week I was spending on this other thing. And it's not like the job, the pay wasn't great. And it was also like, I'd get in at eight and I might get home at 9 PM at night. So it was just exhausting. I was like in New York city, but I was living to work instead of like working to live. I lived in this amazing city and I wasn't able to like socialize or do anything. And so it took me a while to figure out what I was going to do. And then like the last, and then even when I was deciding, okay, I'll leave, I didn't want to leave them in the lurch because I was running some projects on site. So what I did is I told them I'll run these stuff on site one day a week because all it was is like paperwork mostly. And so it was also a good way for me to check that I was able to work for myself. Cause I'm like, what if I quit my job and I just turn into a bum and I just lay around and do nothing? Like what if, cause I never had that before. So what I did was I told them I needed 
like a three month hiatus for my work thing to come through. Like I just made up an excuse that I couldn't work because of this visa thing or this green card thing because I needed permission or whatever. I forget the exact reason. And it was technically true, but like nobody would have checked. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, okay, I'll just finish these projects up and then I'll, I'll see if I want to go back. And so every Wednesday I would do the work and then like Wednesday evening, I'm like, oh, thank God, I don't have to go back there for another week. And I was just like grinding in my own time. So as soon as I was done with those projects, I told them I was leaving. I think the day before my 26th birthday, I was like, I told them I was leaving and I was even stressed out when I sent the, the email after. I'm like, oh my God, I'm unemployed. I'm <laughs> like, I don't have a job. Like, what the hell? And the, my bosses, who I respect a lot, they were like a married couple and they were just doing a lot of things right. Some efficiencies in the office could be better, but I really like them as people. And and the husband was like, you know what? We also were entrepreneurial and we wanted to start our own thing. So they were supportive. And I think by the end, I was just not a great employee anyway. And, and a cool thing, I think, in you did that and that is like, you're always sort of hedging and making sure that you have another option. Yeah. Instead of just like quitting and leaving. Yeah, I'm always, I take measured risks because I know, okay, if this doesn't work out, I can go back to this. Like I'm not quitting my job and running into the sunset because it just, for me, doesn't make sense. I don't want to be super stressed out. And it's better to know if something's going to work than to have, and, and you're also more, or I find I am more productive when I have such limited time. Cause I'm like, this is what I have to get done. Whereas sometimes when I have like a whole day to do something, it doesn't get done. Yeah. Cause you just feel like you have all the time in the world and, and there's no like Kind of like what you were saying, like clear, clear direction. Yeah. And the cool thing in that is, yeah, you just kind of like hedge your bets and, and you also had something that was running. So when you were doing your side project, were you doing all of that yourself or did you have a team that you had built up or no, was I was like doing everything? I was, the wor- I was the worst. I was doing everything for a long time. Around the holidays, I hired a task rabbit at one point because I was shipping. There was so many orders and they were going out of my tiny apartment. And so I would get up a few hours early before work, like pack them all. And then I would get a task rabbit to literally bring bags and bags of stuff to the post office and mail them for me. So for a long time, I was doing a lot myself. Then I got a, a warehouse and they were doing more. And then eventually like I got a virtual assistant and they were handling more things. So I tried to, I learned over time about like creating a team and opt optimizing and creating systems and stuff like that. But that was completely new before I started. I think that's something that especially like creators have a lot of problem with is, is sort of like systems and hiring and and things like that. Like what have you in the last few years learned about that that was maybe like surprising for you? Well, I think at the start, it's more annoying because you don't know how to do it. And then you're like, well, creating the system is going to take longer. I could just do it right now. But then if you just create the system over time, it compounds, so you save a lot of time. So now I look at it, as soon as I can optimize anything in my life, I will do it. And my fiance will laugh at me because I will literally optimize everything, everything I can. For and example? It, like, um, I'll just batch things. I can't, I'm trying to think, like, she wanted to do something in Photoshop the other day, like, bunch of images, change them. And I'm like, we'll just create an automation and we'll batch this. She's like, I didn't even know you could do that. I'm like, yeah, we're not going to sit here and like do a hundred pictures. Like I'll just create this automation and then we'll leave it and it's going to get done. Or like I have a, someone that comes to clean the house and I created a 
so like a standard operating procedure for cleaning because I don't have to remind every time and then she'll take it off. And I do that because I want things to be done in a specific way and I don't want to have to use my brain power to think up stuff when I could just create a system around it. And also that like a team, like if you have a team, they also want procedure to follow most of the time. You know, you can't have one for everything, but like stuff that's all you do every single time. Like I have one for myself. If I shoot videos, I have like, okay, plug this in, check the audio, like blah, 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 because there's been so many times where I'll miss one thing and then I waste a bunch of time and something doesn't come out the way we need and I'll have to redo it. So now I have a, a list for myself and it's just, you know, for my for me and I can be a creator and be creative more if I don't have to deal with this like dumb stuff. That's a good lesson for me in terms of recording audio because we had to figure that out before we started. What, what sort of inspired that? Did, were you always doing that or... Did you like make a mistake that led to that or, or how did that sort of like come about? Which part? Just this idea of like creating systems. Cause I think for a lot of creators, that's like very foreign. I think I realized it helped me be more creative. Cause I could, if I had a structure that I could find freedom beyond that. Whereas if you're using all of your brain power to figure out something over and over again, like you're wasting time and you're being less efficient. That's so it's for me, it's more like, I want to have more time to do what I want so sometimes people are like, oh, being productive and efficient so you can do more work. I'm like, no, be productive and efficient so that you can do more of what you want to do, whether if that's work or spending time with like friends or whatever. But the more time you can save and batch and systemize and make things more streamlined, the more time you can spend doing what you want. How are other ways in which you're sort of doing that to focus more on your on your creativity? For systems or? Yep. I mean, I create... I feel like I create. How do you balance when you're creating versus like all the other stuff? Uh, well, I, I have days and like, like my week is split up in a way where it's like, okay, uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays are my like call meeting days. Wednesdays and most of Monday are my like free time. And we used to do a like product working call on Mondays and it would stress me out because a lot of time we'd be talking about stuff in the week but I wanted people to get a jump start on the week and then Tuesday to be the day we could look at stuff because you can get a lot more done you know if you're starting your week and be like okay I can get some work done instead of being caught in meetings all the time mm -hmm. so just like planning my week in a way that I know exactly when to be creative and there's times when I'm like in creative mode and then something will come up that I'll be like, okay, I can create a system around this to make it easier. And I'll just write it down somewhere and then I'll get back to being creative. And I think, I think that's something you've done really well, which is kind of balance that like sort of left brain and right brain, like the creative and the business side, right? Talk a little bit about that, like how that came about and what does that look like for you? Um, well, there's, an, there's just like the manager maker schedule. So managers just like short, like 30 minute, like whether it's meetings or random stuff that comes up and there was a time when that was just becoming my whole week and then I wasn't in creative mode which is actually much more valuable for the company if I'm doing that so I came up with okay I have like personal critical drivers to get somewhere so if I say our one of our key things is create this many products a year well if if I don't get six hours a week of of thinking time and not work, 
then that's not going to happen. So if I'm tracking, okay, this is how much time I'm getting, we're more likely to get there. And so the team kind of learned, okay, Catherine needs her time to, if we want her to produce and like Mm -hmm. do this stuff, like she has to have time to do things. And also with the team, like I made Wednesday, like a focus day for everyone. So like, don't, you don't have to be on Slack. You don't have like, nobody has to have calls or meetings or whatever. Just get your shit done and don't like expect anyone to respond unless there's an emergency, like the store goes on and we have to like jump in and fix something. Like my old job was completely inefficient and that Sometimes it's like 6 p.m. And that's when I felt like I could get work done because it's like emails coming in, like phone, like people talking, all this stuff, like open office. They wouldn't let you listen to music. And I am like ADD, like distracted all the time. And so I didn't want the team to feel like that with Slack and everything else. So that's why we use Asana for project management. We update in there. Slack's for like chat. And you can batch your week however you want, like be on meetings. But I don't care when you work, just that you get work done. And that's so important, like especially when you have a team, like creating that structure so that they're not being bombarded with things all day, especially what you said about like Wednesday being the focus day. Right. Did that, I guess, I'm guessing that came from a need or was that something you've always done? I think after, well, I didn't realize, I think when I first started, that's what I would do. But then when you grow a team and you're just doing different things, sometimes your week can just fill up with random calls and meetings and like you want to connect with people and so when there's no what's the word constraints then it's really hard like it's actually and I learned this when I was an architect when you if you can build a building in the middle of nowhere like you can literally do anything which means it's very difficult because you can do anything when you have constraints say you're doing something in the city and you only have this much space and like Mm -hmm. light comes this way you, it's much easier to create something. So for me, like having some constraints makes it easier to create and also gives you some structure. Instead of just like having complete freedom to do whatever you want. Yeah. How did that apply for, so, so a lot of people, are, when, when they're creators, when they start, like things start going well, they have to think about hiring, right? And it's just this big thing, like after like hire and build a team and they don't really know how to do that. So what sort of constraints did you apply there when you when you started? I don't think I was good at hiring when I started. I've gotten better. So I, I've created like a hiring flow that people go through. So first thing is we put up a that we want a job. And, and there's multiple steps to getting, like I'm not going to get on the phone with everyone that applies. So the first step is like send an email to this address with this subject line and these two things. And there's a filter set up. So if you don't send the exact thing that I tell you and the exact things, your email goes right to the trash because you can't follow instructions. And then once, and this is all automated. So it's like you send an email, then if you do the right thing, you get an email automatically back saying, okay, here's the job posting. So you can officially apply. Then when you apply, we ask you to do a video, like short, like two minutes, tell us about yourself. And then... We have a, one of the team does like a 15, 20 minute, like quick call with you. And then I'll get on a call once that, then once you get through to that, and sometimes you don't even talk to me. Sometimes you'll talk to someone else on the team, but for like high level positions, I'll, I'll talk to you. But that way there's like a culture fit. 
you know how to follow instructions. So you're already most of the way there by the time you get on the phone with someone. And that has made it easier because before it's either someone doesn't know how to do things or they don't fit in with the culture of the team and it's just hard to manage. There are a couple of exceptions. So designers, my designer I find on Dribble, and I didn't make him go through all the the rigmarole because I learned because I am one like designers are sometimes all over the place. So I looked on Dribble. I find the work, the guy that I ended up like hiring, <laughs> we did a call and he had done no research and um, was not prepared at all. But I'm like, he was European and he had these like cool, like very design glasses. And he was very like, you just tell he's into design. And so I'm there with at the time, our head of marketing. And she's like, what do you think? I'm like, I think he's good. And it was just like purely gut. I'm like, I don't know why, but let's hire him. And he's been like incredible. And that that was one where if I got him to do all this stuff, like he might've gotten just distracted and he might've got the end, but his design is someone who like follows all the structure might get to the end and, and be like, oh, the design's not good. So I'm not going to hire you. Whereas I could tell this is someone that loves to do what they do on their spare time. So if you have a designer or developer or someone with that kind of skill set that also does it in their free time, like that, that's someone that enjoys doing the work. So like day one of when I hired him, he's like, first day, he's like, hey, I, I designed this video game yesterday because he's a designer and developer. He's like, I did. He's like, I don't know if you can do anything with it, but I just did it. And it's just, it was on Sunday. And I'm just like, first of all, I'm like amazing that he spent his Sunday working on this game to like, I need to harness that energy into like what we want to do. And I did three, I don't know what to do with this game. <laughs> we never did anything with it because it was just something that he did, but just finding someone that likes to do what you want them to do for their work and their free time is really good. I love that. Yeah. Like find the, the idea that like one, like you created that process that's actually measuring for both attention to detail and culture fit even before anyone talks to them. Yeah. Because a lot of time people will just like get on phone with anyone. I've done that mistake where I'll hire someone. I mean, I've like, done that mistake as well. <laughs> so now I, I created a, a filter to save everyone's time, including my own. What did your hiring mistakes look like early on? It was just like hiring. And it was mostly my fault. It's like when you hire someone that isn't the right fit for the job or you don't show them what success looks like in the job. I I definitely did that. Um, You don't onboard them properly. So you don't give them the tools to succeed. So it was just like, I haven't done anything where it was like, that was horrendous. It's more of like, oh, okay, no, I get it. It's just like, I didn't either onboard them correctly, they didn't have the right skills, or on one a couple of equations, they just didn't have the right attitude. Like if you're an introvert and you're in customer support or sales, like that's not a good fit. That's interesting because I'm introverted and I do sales, but I... But I don't think, you know, just like if you are, I mean, this is just what I, I've seen. If you're an introvert and you have to spend every single day on the phone and talking to people... I'm an introvert and that'd be a fucking nightmare. Yeah, you're, you're not going to do it after like a few days. You're like, I need my... No, because then you need to go stuff. back and rejuvenate. I'm not saying you can't do it. It's just if you have an extrovert in that position who like thrives mm-hmm. off talking to people, then it just doesn't require as much 
personal energy and, and they're less likely to get burned out. Mm-hmm. And sort of like going back a little bit, I think one amazing thing that you talked about was um, when you worked with the designer, how you sort of went with your gut and just hired him instead of putting him through the test, right? As you've grown in business, how do you sort of know or how have you learned to like trust your gut or know when to make decisions based on that or, or something else? So I think for a lot of positions, you can give like we've hired people. We hired someone right outside of school. Actually, they were still in school when we hired them and we just got them courses and like gave them a lot of tools. But if you have the right attitude and like a, a desire to learn and get better, then there's not many things that you couldn't do. Like I wouldn't hire a designer that hadn't designed before, but I would hire a marketing person that was willing to like jump in and learn things because you can hire them cheaper than you could someone else. And they want to learn and they will be, they'll just work hard if you find the right people. Do you have a way you test for that in terms of attitude? Um, I think just throwing people in the deep end <laughs> from when they start. It's like the people that, are on the team, as I'm thinking, like, I think all of them, it was just like, okay, here's the stuff. Ask me if you have any questions, but giving them autonomy over what they're doing. And then also like when I bring someone on, like when I brought on my product manager, who was the first person under me that was like really managing things. I think for the first two weeks, we spent like 30 minutes every morning on the phone so that I could like onboard him properly. Cause I'd also tried to bring people on and then not spend enough time with them. So yeah, just giving people like the education and and resources that they need to succeed in their role so that, yeah, you're getting like your money's worth. And and I also am very clear with employee, like people on the team that people know what we spend to buy, like cost of goods. (laughs) And I'm like, we don't sell products at cost and we don't hire people at cost. So if you're not 5Xing what we pay you in value, then it's not good for you or for us. Like, and that was from just the idea of, I don't know if I heard it. Someone was like, this isn't a government's jobs program. Like, I don't have to hire you. You have to like prove your value. And I think what's great with a team is that they notice and they know like, okay, this is what I did. And it makes them feel like they're progressing. And it's not like some, some types of team members that it's not like a dollar amount. Mm-hmm. But you know when you are providing value and when you're not. In that you're also like setting the right expectations for them in terms of what they have to do. Yeah. To stay. Yeah. And then it, it's like a ro- it creates like a rowboat where everyone has to pull their weight or it doesn't work. And there has been people, one person in specifically that we had to let go that it was very clear to every single person on the team who was the weakest link. And... It's just not good for culture if that person stays around because it will just, everyone else's, if you keep someone around long-term that is not providing value and is actually bringing the team down, then you will make the rest of the team feel like they don't need to work as hard because you're going to keep someone on that's clearly not pulling their weight. How was that experience for you, like letting someone go for the first time? It's hard to do it, but I've somehow stayed on good terms with everyone like friendly or friends with even people that I've let go so I I think I must be doing something right it's just setting expectations and it always sucks like I had someone cry when we let them go and it was just hard because 
that's not what I started this for. But um, at the end of the day, everyone else's jobs are in jeopardy if the business doesn't succeed. So that's how I started looking at it. Yeah, it's really tough to kind of like sort of balance that when you're looking out for the business, but you also have that personal relationship yeah. with the person. Jumping back a bit, so so you had were at your architecture job, you're doing the side product, you leave that. What was the journey from that to then getting to Best Self? I had a couple of different things between, so like 2011 or 2012 is when I started the first thing. And then 2015 was when I launched the Kickstarter for Best Self. And in between those, those three years, like I was doing a ton of like personal development and like just learning about entrepreneurship and productivity and how to be more efficient. Like I was basically like drinking from a fire hose for three years, like going to conferences, like meeting a ton of people. And I had a software thing for a second. And I also had another e-commerce thing. So I basically had two e-commerce things and a software thing before Best Self. And then Best Self came not from a wanting to make a business. This, the first product for the Best Self was the Self Journal. And that came from like my co-founder, Alan and I, who were accountability partners at the time. And we came up with a framework of like, okay, here's how we be as efficient as possible and hit the goal. So we set, because he had a, a marketing um, consulting thing at the time. And then I had a product, two product businesses. So I was like, okay, I have such limited time. Mm-hmm. that I have to be super efficient. And so what started as like a framework inside of a moleskin, as the designer, I'm like, oh, I need to not have to write this in every single day. And so I created like a, basically a PDF, which is ugly to write on just printing it out at home. So I, I went and like figured out how to like make this thing, but it was going to be super expensive. And so then that was when I decided to go to Kickstarter. So so that came from a personal need. Even before we get into that, like, why didn't the other stuff work or what was different about this? Because you said you had two other e-commerce things and the software thing. So the software thing came from this course that I did about creating a software company. And that's when I realized I was a product person, not a, not, I didn't want to do sales. So like I figured out a problem. I had some, I pre-sold it and then I built this software that solved the problem and then once it was just ready to sell, I'm like, oh, this is like, I don't want to do that. Because you have to go out and sell to people. Yeah, it was, it was also in a market that I didn't really care about so much. And and so a lot of it was like, I learned a ton from that because I learned how to like cold call people and cold email people and like take a, like talk to people and then figure out their problems and then create a solution for mm-hmm. it. So I learned a ton from it, but it just wasn't something that I wanted to work on. So I ended up shutting that down. And the other e-commerce thing that I had was um, drop shipping from China, like creating these product brands for Amazon. The whole FBA thing, right? Yeah, yeah. It was just an (laughs) FBA thing, but it was just, it didn't feel like something that I wanted to be working on because it wasn't aligned. It just felt to me like importing shit from China and then selling it, which I know makes money. And a lot of people were making money, but it just didn't feel like something I wanted to do. So I was still had that going when the Kickstarter launched. And so I'd fo- we'd focused a lot on the Kickstarter. And then the Kickstarter did so well. And I'm like thinking of going back to just doing this Amazon thing. And it just felt out of integrity with what I wanted to do. So I'm like, fuck it. 
let's just shut it down or sell it or do whatever. Actually, I just said shut it down. And Alan was like, maybe we should sell it. So that was smarter than my idea. But I just wanted to get rid of it because it didn't feel like part of my journey anymore. Yeah. But I learned from it. Like I learned how to import and like I learned how to sell things on Amazon so that when we had products for Amazon, I could sell on there. So I tr- so every single thing that I did, I learned how to do it through like something I did before. And that's so important is like knowing when something is, is you're learning the skills, but when it's time to move on because you don't feel aligned to it. Yeah. You said the Kickstarter did really well. How did you guys, because it wasn't a surprise, right? Like what did you guys do to make sure it did well or what did that look like? So I done three, three Kickstarters before. Uh, with another business or two Kickstarters, two or three, I forget. But on those at all done like better every single time. So I had a kind of an idea of what exactly I needed to do, like build an email list and what to do on launch day and stuff like that. So our goal was 15,000 publicly. So that was our Kickstarter goal. But Alan and my personal goal was 200,000, which we didn't tell anyone because the few people we did tell we just laughed at us. So we were like, like, it's too crazy. Yeah. They're just like, that's dumb. So we just stopped telling people. And then we, we hit our funding goal of 15 in like 28 hours. And then we, we raised 323,000 or something in like 34 days. And so when we did that, I'm like, this seems like we should focus on this. And so that's kind of what started. So it started with a product around this pain of like, when we're in school and, you know, growing up, we don't really learn how to manage our time and like so many things that are so much more important than this shit that we learned at school, like the mitochondria of the cell and all that stuff. So whenever the journal came out, it was like, I'd read all these books around productivity and systemizing and all of this goal setting. And so it was like, okay, but how do I actually make this into something concrete? So it was kind of my, okay, just fill in this journal and you'll be successful. So it was just like, do all the things like gratitude and prioritizing and time blocking and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. But instead of you having to reinvent the wheel, here it is in a box, go do it. So just taking a lot of the guesswork out of things. You're sort of like productizing everything you've learned for yourself. Yeah. And like what had worked for me and what hadn't. And then just like, how do I take learnings and create a framework to work within for people. Um, one thing you mentioned is, is how people said you were, it's kind of crazy that you would hit 200,000. How did that feel when, when you actually hit your stretch goal? Oh, it felt awesome. I remember whenever, uh, I don't know if I told my dad or I think we were just over 200 or something and we only had like five days to go. And I mentioned like, oh, it'd be great to raise like 250, like quarter of a million. Can you imagine? And my dad was like, maybe someday. And I'm like, no dad, like this is it. (laughs) And I think it was just so foreign that it was like, that doesn't even make sense. Even my brother was like, I don't understand what's going on. Did you go out and celebrate or was it just like, yeah, I mean, I wasn't on to the next one. I remember just being exhausted after, like, I think I got a little sick right after because you spend like 34 days reacting to everything. So everything that we talked about, like 
getting up in the morning and doing your three things. When you're running a crowdfunding campaign, you are reacting to everything and have to be on all the time. So after it was over, I was like, okay, breathe. And that was when the thought of going back to doing something I didn't care about was like not interesting to me. Mm -hmm. What's sort of the why for you behind Best Self now? So whenever I think of everything that I've learned and I'm still learning since I left like university, like I have a master's degree and I didn't even know how to set goals or manage my time or so many things. And so for me, best self is like, how do I help people become more intentional with their life without having to like spend 10 years learning how to do it? Like here's what works and here's what works for a lot of people and then creating a system around it so that they can have more intentional, like they can you know, because time is basically what anyone has. It's like the currency mm -hmm. of life. And if we can give people more time back to do what they want. So it's like between like not being productive for the sake of being productive, it's like being productive to get more done in your day so that you can achieve more goals or spend more time with the people you love or do the thing that you love. That is what matters more than saving time for the, for the sake of saving time. I think that's so important because a lot of people are just working on things they don't care about and having that purpose, because I'm sure it helps you like drive your team and it's kind of like build that culture, right? Yeah, and like people, you know, there's stuff that doesn't always go so well, but whenever we get like a, we have a, um, a Slack channel, it's like success stories and it's just like reviews and people that write us. And it's usually the customer support people that share it. But when it gets shared, it's like, oh, that's what it's for. Like, that's why this matters. What are some of your, like, favorite stories or... I mean, someone recently got the intimacy deck and told us they were on the brink of divorce and it saved their marriage. So it's, like, crazy shit like that. Or, like, someone that just used the framework to, like, lose weight that they've never been able to do or make enough money that their wife could stay home from work instead of both of them working in the job and then never seeing their kids. So it's stuff like that where it's like, oh, okay that kind of takes you out of the whatever dumb stuff that you're concerned about. And it's like, okay, this, this matters. Yeah. Cause you're getting kind of like the user feedback. Yeah. So, so you had your first Kickstarter and then you won Shopify's contest. And how has that journey of sort of been for you from like Alan and you to like building a team kind of like, I'm sure it wasn't all just positive, right? No, it was all sunshine and daisies. Uh, no, it was not. I think it's just been um, constant learning. Like, I don't feel like I'm ever going to be done. I think when we first started, it was like Alan and I just doing everything. And we did that for 10 months or so until it got to the point where it was like, neither of us could, were good at customer service. We're like so impatient. And then I would take everything to heart. He would be impatient and like, just too harsh with customers, let's say. And then I would take Stop everything. Stop emailing me. <laughs> like one person would, would say something negative about like the paper or whatever. It didn't matter how many positive things. I'm like, oh God, maybe we should change it. So I would like just let everything get to me, which mm -hmm. wasn't good. So I think the first person we hired was like customer support and then like an operations person because just filling the, the holes that we weren't good at. So it was like filling the holes that we either weren't doing or just weren't very good at. And so that was like a lot of the admin type things. So I was product person and Alan was a marketing person. And so when we were in those core 
doing those core things, then that was when we were being our most valuable to the company. What have you learned about just as you guys were like growing together, just the co-founder relationship? Because as the company grows, I'm sure that's evolved and you guys have evolved. Yeah, I mean, having a co-founder is like being married. So we had, actually, I think at the fir- when we won the first Shopify competition, Harley, who's CEO of Shopify, at one point we were we were hanging out with him and he was saying, we're like, what do we need to know for the next stage? And he's like, just what will be the most beneficial for you to do is to make sure that your guys' relationship stays intact because that is what I see more than anything in business. So we ended up hiring a coach and the coach became like our, I would joke and call it our marriage counselor uh-huh. because, you know, of course things like hit the rocks and like we come from two completely different backgrounds. So even there's, it just got to a point where it's like, okay, it's good to have like a mediation person in the middle to figure stuff out. And then also when you first get started before you build a team, there's, you're used to doing everything. And then when we started building a team, we hired like a marketing people that knew more than Alan did. So it was like, they started doing more of that stuff. And so he ended up stepping away and that was weird for him and for me because we started together. And so then we had to figure out, okay, what does that look like for the next thing? And, you know, it hasn't been all great, but it's just like a, I, now whenever I feel, you know, when you feel like down on yourself or like annoyed at something or have a problem, that is when I'm like, changed my, the way I think from like, oh, I have to deal with this problem, like per me to, oh, I am at a point in my life when I get to deal with this level of problems, which is so different and like something that I never would have thought that I would have to deal with. So I should be grateful for this, even though it's hard. Like the reason it's hard is because not a lot of people get to do this. That's a, that's a really great insight in terms of like the level of problems. Like how has that evolved for you? Um, I think you just, you deal with more bigger and bigger problems the more you do this. Like a problem that came up soon after our Kickstarter was something that it was so hard at the time, but we handled it. And if that came up now, I would know like, oh, it wouldn't even like phase me in my day. And so, whereas a problem that we might face like a year ago, if we'd faced that in year one, like it might've tanked us. For, for example? Like learning how to manage cash with physical products and inventory. And like, I'm trying to think of like, we had a, we had a fulfillment center in Europe that like basically held us hostage for a while over Black Friday. And so if we had dealt with that year one, like that would have been the worst. Whereas year three, we could like negotiate and figure out a way to solve it. But it's just different levels of problems all the time. And if you you know, I used to be like, oh, I can't wait till the problems are over. It's like whack-a-mole where you're just, you deal with one and then another pops up, but you don't have any problems. You're probably dead. How have you personally evolved through these, through the last few years? Like learning through these problems and hiring and everything? I mean, I think... Just in general, like as, as a person, like how do you feel like you've evolved through the lessons that you've learned from Best Self? Um, I think I've just become more, like I've learned more and then also become more confident in what I can do and also what I can't do and just handling things better than I did before. Like, I think when I first started, at least, like, I think when I met, before I met Alan or right around the time we met, 
like I, I came from a design background and didn't know about business really besides, besides like an eBay business I had. Like I'd never done a business class. I'd never done anything business related. So the thought of doing anything like that, I'm like, well, I, I don't know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And so I was, I think I was definitely insecure in what I knew and what I didn't knew, know. And I would probably take, I would take more people's advice that also might know what the fuck they're talking about, but they'll, they're free to give advice. And now I know how to weigh advice according to the person that it's coming from. Like, it's like a, each person has a scorecard. And if you've done this thing before and know what you're talking about, I will rate that highly. If you, like, if Alan gives me, if Alan gives feedback on design, I will rate his much lower than my designer who is actually a designer. So it's more of like, now I can see people and understand where they're coming from and whose advice I, I should take and, and when I can be confident in what I, what I think. Yeah, because when you're starting out, like you just sort of like, you'll take everyone's feedback equally. Yeah. And someone who's just kind of like giving his opinion, you're like, oh crap, like I have to change everything. Right. And yeah, and just being more like, okay, it just takes a while to like, and I still don't know it all the time, but figuring, just being more confident in my own decision-making. And that just comes from like experience. I think that's the thing too, is like a lot of people think they can just kind of like start and have that. But you almost have to go through the experience to start getting that confidence. Yeah. Most people that have it at the start are just pretending to have it. And then eventually they will have it. But I wasn't very good at pretending back then. Did you feel that? You said you were sort of like you felt insecure on the business side because your background was design. What did you do to get better at that? Uh, Well, before I quit my job, my architecture job, I... I was like, well, I want to quit, but I can't quit until I learn stuff about business. So I just, I picked like 22 books, I think, on, it was like mindset, finance, like marketing. There was five different categories. And so I picked 22 books and I wasn't allowed to quit my job until I read these books. And luckily I had, you know, between going to work and back and lunch, actually I didn't have lunch at that time, but (laughs) no, and I, we never had a lunch hour on the way to and from work. It's like 45 minutes to an hour a day mm-hmm. where I could just read. And so I just read a ton of books on all the stuff that I w- didn't know about so that I could at least have some sort of foundation so that when I went out and did my own thing that I wasn't like sort of in the, the complete dark. I mean, I, I still was, but at least I had an idea of what I was supposed to be doing. That's, that's, that's amazing that you almost like set yourself for a curriculum and we're managing yourself because a lot of people are just like oh I'm making money I'm gonna quit and then figure it out well I think it's all about measured risk so it's like figuring out what the unknowns are and then a timeline of when can I know more than I know right now so that I can do this thing that I want to do so it's like I wanted to quit my job but I have to figure out this stuff and the reward Mm -hmm. is quitting my job and even when I quit let me see and make sure that I don't actually turn into a bum, so I'll do this for a certain amount of time. So it's always like a little bit of overlap to make sure that I'm setting myself up for success. And, and do you do this like, I'm just curious, like even in like personal stuff? Like is it one of those things where like you're doing it everywhere or? I don't know how I, I don't have an example for personal, but I'm sure that I do it. So you've had this incredible journey from moving here from Ireland and, and starting by self and it just went through uh, Black Friday. What's next for for Best Self? I mean, 
what's next for best self? I think just creating tools for people to live more intentionally and get more out of their lives and whatever that looks like. I'm not totally sure, but we have a really awesome community of people that are all they're, all they are doing is like becoming better, which is everyone should always be trying to improve themselves, even if it's just a little bit. So I feel grateful that I get to create things for people that use them and, and get value out of them and then just become better people. And then the world's better. That's amazing. And, and do you feel like as people are getting better, the kinds of problems you have to solve for them change? I think there's different levels of where people come in from. Like if I had to come in 2012 at one level, I'm going to be needing a completely different set of things than someone that I, where I'm coming in. So you might come in at some point and be like, well, I don't even know how to set a goal or like manage my time. So what do I do? And then you have people that like, now if I came, it's like, well, I I know how to manage my time effectively, but how do I be more intentional with my personal relationships? And what does that look like? So everyone always has problems, just a different level of problems on what they figured out. It's kind of like the Maslow's hierarchy of like where people are coming in from. So how do you design for that? And the, the reason I'm curious is like my experience has just been more like consulting with like very few people, right? And you're actually designing for like hundreds of thousands of people. So how do you think about product development when, when you have such a big audience? Well, when we first started, our first product was the self-journal. And that was came from a lot of times that's designing for me or like I create frameworks to make something in my life easier and then it becomes like a product later. So I wrote a blog post of like, here's how I plan and manage my week and like not just manage my time, but like manage my energy and when I do things. And that three years later became a product that did really well because it wasn't just like, here's a thing, here's like a pad of paper. It's like, here's a system to do things. So for me, I find once I figure out something and can create a framework or a way for other people to do it in an easier way than what I started with that works, that's kind of where things have started from. So it's almost coming from a personal lead first and then... Yeah. And then, you know, we started as very like type A work, productivity, like get your goals, blah, blah, blah. And then, and I realized this in my personal life is like, once you hit your goals and get all the stuff that's supposed to make you happy and fulfilled and you're still not fulfilled, you're like, what the fuck have I been doing this for? And what I realized is that being your best self is about more than like hitting your goals in one area. Like if you are winning the Shopify build a business competition and like working all the hours and like successful in one area, but you don't, you're like unhappy, you don't, you're not in a good relationship or you're never seeing your friends or you're not working out or being healthy, then, then you're not being your best self. You're being your best self in one side of like one small piece of your life. But when you go home at night, like that's not actually something that's going to make you fulfilled. And that might be the perfect place to end this is how to be your best self. So if people want to find out more, where can they find you? Uh, You can find me and our products on bestself.co. And you can find like personal rambles on my blog called littlemite.com. And if people want to say thank you, um, Twitter, Instagram, or? Just my name, Catherine Lavery on Twitter, Instagram, all all the things. It's C-A-T-H-R-Y-N. That's not a normal way you spell Catherine, but uh, that's how I spell it. Cool. And we'll have that linked up in the show notes. Thank you for doing this. Awesome. Good to see you. 
It's you too. Hey, it's Sachit again. If you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did, make sure you thank our guests and let them know what you thought. There's easy links to all of their social media, Twitter, Instagram, everything else in the show notes. Secondly, make sure you head on over to creators.show to get new episodes, exclusive guides, partner deals, and additional bonuses. See you next week.